go, Pastor Daniel's filling in for me. Let me just give you a plug. I don't have a bio to read other than the fact that Daniel is an extremely faithful man. And I can't thank him enough. Do you know how incredibly rare it is to have people who will stay with you in the ministry year after year after year? And Daniel really never complains about me to you all. He complains about me to me, but I can live with that. He's a wonderful, faithful, godly man. I know he's going to bring the word. I know he's been praying all week this week. It stretched him, and I'm looking forward to hear what the Lord put in your heart, brother. Thank you, Pastor Jordan. All right. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you this morning. How are you all doing? Good. Hey, would you open your Bibles with me to John 1? John 1, 29. I want to jump right into the word here. And uh, I'm going to be able to close out this the Dove Awards series. And I've loved what Pastor Jordan's been preaching on about the Holy Spirit. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to share a little bit uh, about the Holy Spirit. So John 1.29, I do want to put a little caveat out there. I failed to get the media team the proper translation that I'm going out of. So you'll be seeing the New King James Version. I'm going out of the ESV. Well, I, I like the ESV, so it's not too different. I checked it all out. It, shouldn't, it should be all right, but let's jump in real quick. John 1.29 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we exalt you in this house this morning. Jesus, you are above all. You are glorified and magnified in this house. And Holy Spirit, you are Lord in this service. Move like you want to move. Do what you want to do. Reveal the word of God in our hearts. Plant the seeds of the word that they may produce fruit in our lives as we go forward. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So John the Baptist says, I saw the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, what's interesting about this passage is that we see two animals here. You know, we've been talking about the dove, the Holy Spirit, but then we also saw the Lamb of God. And you know, I thought about titling this sermon Animal, uh, Animal Farm, but I decided that probably wasn't a good idea. We're going to go with the Lamb and the Dove. So John, in this gospel, he introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God. You know, there's, there's very few accounts that are in all four gospels. You have the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus across all of them. And then there's just a few of them that hit in all the four gospels. Well, the baptism of Jesus is one of them. And his introduction as the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit is in all four Gospels. But this is the first time that we hear John the Baptist introducing Jesus as the Lamb of God. So this is significant because we're going to look at the characteristics of the Lamb of God this morning. Now, at the end of this passage, if you, if you notice, there was two things it said about the Holy Spirit coming. That the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and he remained. So that's the key here. We don't just want an experience with the Holy Spirit. We don't just want an experience, a one-time thing, or, or go from experience to experience. We want the Holy Spirit to descend and remain in our lives. 
It's interesting here in this, in this passage how two members of the Godhead are likened to animals. They're compared to animals. They're, they're, it's interesting how in our world we can use animals to see characteristics of things. So Jesus even did it. Do you remember what he said to the disciples? He said, uh, be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You know, when I think of a serpent, you know, have you ever heard the term, um, that person's a snake? They, they're, they're crafty, they're um, scheming, they're not truthful, you know, they're, they're kind of a liar. You know, we, we compare things to animals all the time. Um, I think about personalities and temperaments, right? Uh, you know, there's, there's schools of thought and different personalities and how they can compare to different animals. You know, typically the person who's outgoing, bubbly, funny, they're typically compared to an otter, right? You can kind of see how otters are playful and, and see how that goes. You know, someone who's driven, who's focused, who gets things done, who's a little dominant, that person they compare to a lion, right? Now, the people who are easygoing, the people who are friends with everybody, the people who just kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're chill, they like to be around people, they're golden retrievers, right? So you can see how animals are used to tie and compare these characteristics um, that we see, these traits. Well, the Godhead was compared to animals here. So what was it about the lamb that represented Jesus specifically? And in particular, what was it about the lamb that drew the Holy Spirit to the lamb? So let's, we're going to look at that here this morning. So we're going to jump into our first point here. The first point is this. Exodus 12, verse 5. If you turn there with me, we're going to go back to look at the picture of the lamb in the Passover. See, when uh, God was going to bring his people out of Egypt, he had them stop on that night, sacrifice the lamb, roast it, eat it, and then he took and had them have the blood on the doorpost, right? This was a representation of Jesus. You know what I love about the Old Testament? The Old Testament is chock full of pictures that speak to Jesus and the work that he did. All over in the Old Testament, you find these pictures of the lamb. You see these pictures of the blood. You see these, these pictures in the sacrifices in Leviticus and, and, and Deuteronomy, where it's all pointing to the sacrifice that Jesus did at the cross. So this is that first picture here. Exodus 12, verse 5, it says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So the first characteristic of the Lamb of God that we see is that the Lamb is pure. The Lamb is pure. It was unblemished. Now, what does that look like? That means that that Lamb had no spots on it. It had no um, markings on it. It had no blemishes. It, it wasn't deformed. It had no deformities in its, its structure. That Lamb was perfect. You see, that's what Jesus is. He was the perfect lamb of God. He had no sin. He didn't make a mistake. He was unblemished. You know, there's a whole school of thought in our world today that says that Jesus sinned, that he didn't actually live a pure and holy life. See, if he didn't live a pure and holy life, there was no salvation. There was, there was no redemption. See, he lived a perfect, sinless life. Well, great, that's Jesus, right? You may be thinking that's, that's Jesus. He's the son of God. He came, came to earth. 
well, how does this apply to us? Well, there's two things that we see in Scripture that applies that purity, that perfection into our lives. See, the first thing is the blood of the Lamb. In verse 12, it says this, Then they shall take some of the blood, put it on the doorposts, and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. This is still talking about that Passover night. The blood of the lamb is what cleanses and purifies. See, blood is significant all across the Bible. In animal, clothing with this. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? God had to kill an animal, clothe them with the skin of the animal. He had to shed blood. What was the structure that God set up all throughout the law? All throughout the law, it was sacrifices. He even set up an entire day, the Day of Atonement in the Jewish calendar. That was, that was the day where the priests, the only day, the priest could come into the Holy of Holies and offer blood. What did he do? He came into that holy place. He's sitting there before the Ark of the Covenant. You all seen uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? You know what I'm, some of you teenagers don't have any idea what I'm talking about, do you? Comes in before the Ark of the Covenant. It's got the two angels facing each other. And that priest would take the blood of that animal and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. That would cleanse the sins of Israel for that year. See, the blood has been significant. I really like what Hebrews talks about in Hebrews 9. I'm just going to read it real briefly for you. It says, how much more will the blood of Christ you see, it's referencing these sacrifices that never fully remove sin. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? See, it's the blood that cleanses and purifies our conscience. When Jesus, who had a sinless, perfect life, offered himself on the cross. He was obedient even to death. He shed his blood for us. When he rose again, he took his blood. He went into the mercy seat of heaven. He went into that holy place, the holy of holies in heaven, and he sprinkled his blood. The difference is between what he did and what the priest did is that it was for all eternity that that blood purifies and cleanses. It was for all eternity that we get to enter into that blood and be cleansed and washed from our sins. So that's what the blood does. It purifies, it cleanses. But there's another aspect of cleansing and purifying that we get to experience as Christians. You see, this, this aspect is something that we walk in daily. See, when we get saved and we make Jesus our Lord and Savior, we are washed in his blood. Now, when God looks at us, all he sees is the blood of Jesus. All he sees is that cleansing work. But you know what? We still live life. And you know what happens when we live life? Sometimes we get a little dirty. Sometimes we walk through some things. We got some wrong attitudes or we walk through some, some situations that we didn't handle the right way. We get a little dirty. But see, Jesus makes a provision for this. I love what Ephesians 5, verse 25 says. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without 
blemish. The whole purpose of Jesus washing us with water is so that we can be as spotless as he is. So what does Jesus do as we walk and we get dirty in life? It's like what he was talking about Peter at the Last Supper. You remember when Jesus goes to wash their feet? Peter says, no, how can you wash my feet? And he says, well, if, you, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. Then Peter says, not just my feet, Lord, all of me. He says, those who are clean only need to wash their feet. See, the blood completely cleanses us. But as we walk, his word sanctifies us. He washes the spots of sin off of us, the dirt that we get on our feet as we walk with the word. You see, there's a reason why we push reading the Bible every day. It's not some religious practice. This isn't just something that, you know, we need you to, to do a religious thing. It's, it's not something good for you to do. It carries the purifying power of Jesus as we engage with the word on a daily basis and allow him to cleanse and wash those attitudes, those thoughts, those um, actions that we walk through life with. Just allow that word to cleanse us. You know, I, I said we walk through life and we get dirty, right? Well, my children love dirt. <laughs> yeah, you can bear witness with that. Yeah, my children absolutely love to get dirty. Jalen loved it so much, man, for when he was little, he would eat the dirt in the sand, just gobs of it in his mouth. It was absolutely disgusting. But he loves to dig. I mean, there's countless times. I was sitting back as I was putting this sermon together, and I was trying to think of an example of when the boys just got completely muddy and dirty, and we had to clean them off. You know what the problem was? I even talked to Jess about this. You know what the problem was? There's too many to count. I couldn't come up with a good example or a good situation. I mean, there's been times where they've just completely got mud all over the house, the doors, the windows, everything. We used to have a of that dirt and that mud so much. You know what was the worst? We used to have a sandbox at the other house. And so those two would get playing, and they'd take a bucket and dump a bucket of sand on the other's head. It was awful. Do you, do you realize how hard it is to get that sand out of their little heads? I mean, it just cakes and attracts. And I could not believe how tough it was. We'd wash them all out. We'd get them all clean. Everything's good, right? Put them to bed. In the morning, there's a sandbox on their pillow because it wasn't all out of their hair. We couldn't do anything with it. And in particular, Jalen, Jalen, he was interesting because um, he doesn't like water. He doesn't like water on his face, doesn't like water around it. He's getting more and more comfortable, but man, it, it's been really working with him with water. But I remember how we'd have to wash him. You had to be careful, and you had to cover his eyes. You had to gently pour it over the top of his head. You had to really work and, and be careful with it. And, you know, as I was thinking about it, that reminds me of Jesus. Because when Jesus washes us with the water of the word, he doesn't take a pressure washer. He doesn't take a fire hose and blast us. He washes us gentle, making sure that his word is not just cleansing, but it's healing, and that it is working in our lives. He, he seeks to um, correct in love and not condemn with what he does in the washing of the water of the word. So the first characteristic of the lamb is purity. The lamb is pure. If you would look real quick on the, on the screen, it'll be Isaiah 53, 7. This reveals the second aspect 
of the Lamb that attracts the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 53, 7, it says this. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What is this picture? See, this picture is the picture of the lamb being meek. The lamb is meek. Now, I want to clarify something here. This is something I've always struggled with in my life with this word meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not just allowing everyone to roll over you. It is not just uh, being a doormat in front of people. Meekness is not weakness. You know what meekness is? One definition I heard was this. Meekness is like strength under control. It's like strength submitted. Think about this for a second. Let's, let's just break down what's going on, what Isaiah's talking about with Jesus as he went through his trial and crucifixion. This is the king of the universe. This is the Lord that is above every Lord. This is the one, I believe he told Peter, that I could call legions of angels right now in the middle of what was going on at the Garden of Gethsemane. He has all the authority, all the power. But think about this. He chose to quiet himself. He did not say a word to defend himself. He did not call on all. I mean, it's like what Ted was saying last week. This is the Lord of heaven's armies. This is the Lord of hosts. And he did not exercise his authority or his power, but he submitted. Here's the thing. Where did he submit? It was in the garden. As he's crying out in prayer, as he's wrestling with what he is facing, as he's saying, God, if there is any other way that this can go down, I am for it. Let's do this. But not my will, your will. And in the surrendering of his will, he laid down his power and authority to execute this any way he wanted, and he took on God's way. He took on the will of the Lord. See, meekness is a will surrendered. You know what I also find interesting about this passage is that that first phrase, he was oppressed. You know what this made me think of? The words that people speak. Think about what Jesus was going through. He had all these accusations all night long. All night long he was having accusations thrown at him in the trial. And it didn't end there. He had this whole thing with with the Romans, the, the, the accusations that the Jews were bringing against him. And then while he's dying on the cross, the slander, the words of accusation coming against him. You know what meekness operates in? It operates in relationships. When, when we're getting attacked and people are talking about us or, or they're confronting us to our face, attacking us to our face, slandering us to our face, we have an opportunity to respond in meekness. See, you know what? I love what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians. See, he's dealing with this situation in the Corinthian church where there's this, there's this idea that, oh, Paul's weighty in his letters. Oh, he's got, he's got a strong voice in his letters, but in person he's weak. He doesn't actually carry any weight in, in, in his presentation. Basically, they're saying, you can talk a big game, but you don't back it up when you're with us, right? 
Paul had the opportunity to assert himself when he was doing when he was uh, addressing this in his letter uh, to the Corinthian church. But this is what he said: "I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ." See, he had every opportunity to assert his authority as an apostle, and yet he chose to respond in the meekness of Christ. And here's the interesting thing with that. Meekness is an internal attitude that affects our external expression. It's this internal attitude that controls and is submitted to God's will and how to treat people that reflects in the expression of gentleness towards others. You know where this is, this is seen? When you're in the middle of your fight with your wife and she pokes that button, she goes there, that one issue in your life that just, man, that burns. That I'm going to respond to that. Meekness chooses not to respond. It chooses to submit the attitudes. See, Paul addresses something like this in Colossians 3. In Colossians 3.8, it says, But you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice. So he's talking about these works of the flesh. He says, you should put these all away. What are those first two three, or three things? Anger, wrath, and malice are all attitudes in our heart that go contrary to the will of God. Our responses to people in anger, look, I'm as guilty as anybody else. You can ask Pastor Jordan. That wrath, that malice, these attitudes we hold towards people, what does it produce? So this, this is the production of these attitudes that supersede meekness. It produces slander and obscene talk from your mouth. It produces lying. It produces these expressions, whereas meekness produces gentleness towards people. It produces reconciliation. It produces restoration. It seeks to build the other person up in love. This the, uh, anger, wrath, and malice seeks to tear down and destroy and only produces death. See, meekness can operate in our relationships. Man, I'll tell you what, this is something I see in, in my life with my kids. It's really easy for me. There's, there's certain things that my children will do that just hits that button of disrespect in my heart. What am I going to do? Am I going to assert my dominance over my child in discipline? Or am I going to respond with the meekness and the peace of God in response to them? See, it's for our relationships. Now, the example I thought of this as I, was, as I was praying about it, meekness is like a horse. How many of you all are horse people in here? Bless your hearts. I am not a horse person. We drive by down 56 and Jalen says to me, Dad, we need a horse. With, what? You don't even like dogs. How do you want a horse? They're way bigger than a dog. We need a horse. Well, Aunt Amanda's going to get one, so you can, yeah. Don't tell, don't tell Uncle David I said that. No. Horses, I just haven't had good experiences with horses. They just, they've tried to kill, they tried to kill me. So, but they are powerful animals. They are majestic animals. They are beautiful animals. Horses, though, what do you have to do to be able to utilize a horse? You have to break him. But with a horse, do you break their power or do you break their strength? Do you break their spirit? 
you break their will. See, meekness is like breaking a horse. Because what happens when that horse is broken, and it's a good broken horse, that horse can be directed by the littlest nudges on the reins or the, the actions with your feet in the stirrups. They can be directed to go any which way. See, meekness in our hearts and in our lives is being broken so that the Holy Spirit can direct us and lead us with the littlest nudges, with the littlest directions in our life. So the characteristics we have is purity and meekness. Let's dig into this third one here. We're going to jump back to Exodus 12. Exodus 12, 6. And you shall keep it, this, this feast, until, or this lamb, excuse me. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs. See, this last characteristic of the lamb is that the lamb laid down his life. The lamb laid down his life. The whole purpose of this Passover lamb was to be killed. It was a year-old lamb. They kept it. They picked it out. They had it for 14 days. His whole purpose was to die, shed his blood, and offer his blood as a response for what was going on in the nation. Jesus' whole purpose was to lay down his life and to die. And you know what? He didn't just lay down his life at the cross. You see, his life at the cross was the culmination of what he walked all the rest of his life. Jesus said to his disciples, I don't do anything that I don't see the Father doing. I don't do anything of my own will. I only do the will of the Father, what I see him doing. So it was a daily, continual thing that Jesus had to walk, laying down his life. Didn't he say that to us? We have to daily take up our cross and die. Death isn't a comfortable subject. Death isn't a fun, fun subject. To see, right? I mean, this is, this is Jesus. His whole purpose coming to the earth was to die. That's easy to see, right? But for us, once we have received the work of the cross and the cleansing of the blood, our whole purpose is to surrender our will and our life to what he wants us to do. See, the death at the cross for us is to surrender daily to see what he wants, to what he wants to lead us and direct us in. It's dying to the things of the world. I love what John says in 1 John 2, and it's in verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. See, this scripture came to me because I think it's one of the greatest summations of all the different details of what it means to be living out of your flesh, living according to the world. See, it's the lust of the flesh. You know what that is? Man, that's, that's the fleshly desires for gratification and pleasure. I mean, it's sexual desires. It's sexual immorality. But you know what it also is? It's also gluttony. It's also those cravings that we have in our life. You know what? The worst, the, the biggest thing that I have a problem with is, is food. I have to struggle with food a lot, right? And I'm just going to let you in. I struggle with mac and cheese. 
When my wife makes homemade mac and cheese, it is terrible. I, I love it. I have a hard time controlling it. It is, it is temptation at my front door. But there's all kinds of things that we struggle to, and desire to please our flesh with. See, the surrender of the cross lets those things die. The second thing is the lust of the eyes. It's the material things. It's those things that surround us that we desire and crave after. You know, when you think about this, most, I, I had never looked at it this before until I was praying about it. When the lust of the eyes is most prominent for us, when you're watching the television, do you, do you ever, see, like, look, I watch YouTube mostly. I, now football season's on, so I, now I'm stuck with commercials. But YouTube, you five seconds, you can zip right past that ad. You don't pay attention to it. But in advertising, what is it doing? It's telling you that you do not have what they have and that you need it. It's setting your focus on the bigger, the better, what you think you need, what you think you desire, what you think you need. You know the issue with the lust of the eyes? is it completely sucks all gratitude towards God. When you're given to what you don't have, you don't look at what he has provided you. When you're given to what is out there and you're seeking that, you don't, you're not thankful for what he has provided and given you. It's the lust of the eyes. It, you know what, it's funny because like with, you think about it with commercials and advertising, that's really easy to look at it that way. But you know what? It's even the Costco ad that comes in, the little mailer, the membership thing. All of a sudden you say, oh, man, I need this fire pit. And look at, look at this pergola over the top. Oh, I need to put that up in my yard. And do, you see that, do, you, do you see that patio set? I think that would be perfect out in our patio. Can you tell what I've been looking at, the issue that I have here when the Costco situation shows up? But it takes our heart away. It takes us away from the gratitude towards him. See, the, the pride of limbs from the, you know what this is? This is an arrogance that comes from the possessions you have or the status that you hold. It's this, I've got this, this look at me. I have attained this status. I have uh, uh, attained this wealth. And you know what this ultimately is? It's the assertion of our independence from God. It's our assertion that I have built my empire. I have built whatever it is. Or it's the striving to build your empire. You know, it's funny. We talk about mac and cheese and patio furniture and all this stuff as temptations. But you know what really I truly struggle with? For me, it's selfish ambition. I want a name. I want to be known. And it is something that I have to continually be crucified at the cross. I have to continually, day by day, let it die at the cross. Because you know what? It's really easy to think of. I want to be known for what I establish, this empire that I create, this, this wealth that I've attained. I want, you know, you know what ultimately drives that? The need for acceptance. I want to just be accepted. And you know what? That drives this desire for ambition. It's something that has to be crucified daily. So when you think about the characteristics that we're looking at, purity, 
meekness, and a life laid down. These are the characteristics that attract the Holy Spirit into our lives. For what purpose? For us to be led, just like those reins with the horse. For us to be led and directed by the Holy Spirit in every area and every aspect of our life. You know what being led by the Holy Spirit's like? It's like a GPS. How many of y'all have ever used a GPS? Driving out, you may be driving in a new city and you really need a, you really need a GPS system. Or maybe, maybe you bought something on Facebook Marketplace and you got to go up to the heights and figure out where in the world this thing is at. Oh, brother. So, what happens with the GPS? You get into the car, you get into the vehicle, and you punch in your destination on that GPS. Then you begin to go. You begin to move forward after your destination's been punched. And as you begin to move forward, it says, turn right in 300 feet. So you turn right. And it says, merge left. Turn right here. And you begin to follow these directions that the promptings are giving you on the GPS to get to your destination. You see, the Holy Spirit is like the GPS, and it's a little different. Did you know that GPS comes predetermined with your destination? See, your destination is determined by the will of God, and the Holy Spirit already knows where God has destined and and prepared for you to go. But what happens when you get into that vehicle? That the GPS has to surrender to the directions. Have you ever all missed the turn that the GPS tells you to make? You know what it does? Recalculating. Recalculating. If you say, well, recalculating one more time, I'm going to. But see, with the Holy Spirit, he desires to lead and navigate and guide us on our journey to the destination that God has prepared for us. And he knows the perfect way. You know what we want to do as humans? Straight line that thing. We go from here to there. That's the destination. All right, let's go. The issue is that's not the journey God has for us. We think the quickest way is the best way, but we don't know what roadblocks are in the way. We have no idea what the road conditions are. We have no idea what the pitfalls are in that. But when we are led by the Holy Spirit to navigate that pathway, that journey in life, all of a sudden we are smack dab in the will of God. You know what the difference is between a normal GPS and the Holy Spirit, though? When we don't listen to a prompting, we don't get a recalculating, his voice goes silent. When we assert our will to go a direction that we want to go, his voice goes silent. And it takes repentance and a restoration of a surrendered will and heart and life to go back onto that path, to get back on where he's directing and leading us so that we can accomplish the destination that he has prepared for us. So this morning... What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? What is he saying about these characteristics in our own life? Look, I've been kind of real. I've shown you some of the issues and the deals that I struggle with. There's a lot of conviction as I was preparing this in my own heart. What's he saying to you this morning? I want to take a moment real quick. If you have never surrendered your life to Jesus... That's the first step. That's the first step in being led by the Holy Spirit. That's what puts your transmission in drive out of park, is receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Because you know what? He loved you so much 
that he left his throne in heaven, left it all to come to earth, to suffer and to die, just to buy you back. It was the only way. But he would do it only just for you if you were the only one. Because he loves you. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'd like to take a moment here. And I'd like to offer you, if you have never made Jesus your Lord and Savior in in your life, today's the day. You have an opportunity. You have a chance. Listen to the voice of the from sin and enjoy because he's drawing you to Jesus so that you can be free from sin and enjoy a relationship with him for the rest of your life and into all eternity. So if there is anyone in this house this morning that has never given their life to Jesus, I'd like you to raise your hand. I see that hand. You know what? Let's go ahead and all pray together this prayer. Lord Jesus, I surrender my life. Jesus, I give you everything. I believe that you died on the cross. I believe that you rose again. And I believe that you've brought me into the family of God. Jesus, I'm a sinner and I receive your forgiveness right now. Amen. Now you're a part of the family of God. This is an awesome thing. But I also want to, everybody would stand up with me, please. I want to take a moment, and I want to pray about what the Holy Spirit's speaking into our hearts this morning. Pastor Jordan wants to say. You know, that, thank you, Daniel. That, that message really resonated with me when he spoke about the broken will. And I'm watching Daniel walk through that himself. I feel like that's something God is constantly doing in my life. And I heard someone say that all God really wants is for you to submit to him. That's really all he's after. And when you, you know, minister about the horse, there's a verse here I always quote in Psalm 147 that God does not delight in the strength of a horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. In other words, he doesn't need your strength. He just needs a broken, surrendered will. And I feel the Holy Spirit in the room here. Now, I want to challenge you to do something a little strange with me because I feel the Holy Spirit prompting us. But if you want to surrender your will, if you're in a process where you feel like the Lord is working in you to break things out of your life, I'd like you to come down and kneel at this altar with me. I just feel like this is a moment God is working on just take you up to a whole other level. I feel like there's things in our hearts that God is working on perfecting and cleansing and purifying. I don't know where you're at in your walk with God. I know for me what I need and what I want to lay down. And, and so I want to just give us the opportunity, if we could, with the presence of the Lord here. If you feel God drawing you, if you want to just say, Lord, I want to give everything over to you. I want to give more to you than I ever have. This is a moment. Because I know some people who really aren't surrendering to him like they need to. But I feel the Lord doing that. So if you got to go and get your kids, man, we love you. Have a great time. If we get some the worship in the house, you can put the track on or some worship music if you would. I just want to take a moment, and I want to get on my knees before the Lord. I feel like the Lord is dealing with me, and I feel his presence here. So I want to invite you to the altar if you need to come down and just get before him. And, and, and just, just be on your knees and say, Lord.
come to me. That's, that's what I really just feel in my spirit. So, hey, we love you. God bless you. We'll catch you next week. But if you want to stay here with us and just be on your face, come on down, man. Love to have you in the house. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, I want to give you my life. Lord, I give it to you. of your presence.